Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie, and today I'm joined by Liuba Gretchen Shirley, Democratic candidate for Congress in New York's 2nd District. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Jordan. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and how it brought you to where you are today? Sure. I work in global development. I have worked for nonprofit organizations my entire life, and I've forged partnerships between businesses and nonprofits and governments to tackle issues including poverty alleviation and economic development and access to health care and paid family leave and government transparency. And I, for years, I worked for New York University working to make sure that the use of our international aid funds were transparent and accountable. And I've worked with women entrepreneurs. I've worked with farmers in Ghana to help them use uh, mobile phone technology to better negotiate their prices that they were trading their crops for. I've worked for the United Nations Association and the UN Foundation to help advocate for the importance of the UN. And I actually was one of the people who managed the merger between those two organizations to help build the largest grassroots network of supporters of the United Nations in our country. Recently, I started, I started a group that actually was an indivisible group called New York Second District Democrats. I thought that it would mostly attract Democrats that were alarmed by Donald Trump's policies. But interestingly enough, we've welcomed a number of independents and even a lot of Republicans into our group who really want to see new change. And we have more than 3,000 members across across the district right now who have been working to hold Peter King accountable and been running this group now for the last year and decided decided I should step up and run. What was the moment that pushed you over and convinced you that you wanted to run and why for Congress in particular? It's an interesting question. Um, I didn't plan on running for Congress. I am a mom. I have a one-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. I've always been very involved in politics, but after the election, I felt like I needed to do something more and I wanted to engage Long Islanders in the political process. And I, you know, reached out to party leadership out here and local elected officials, and I didn't get very far. And that's when I started this Facebook group, which turned into this this incredible movement across the district of people who were finally realizing how Peter King's votes affected them and wanted to, you know, stand up and fight back. And I got very involved and we started organizing uh, lobby days and rallies and protests and letter writing campaigns and you know, working on local elections. And people started asking me if I would consider running for Congress. And because my children were so young, I really, you know, I I thought about them growing up in a country with a president who proudly boasts of sexually assaulting women and a country where our Congress works day and night to pass a healthcare bill that would make being a rape or domestic violence survivor a pre-existing condition. And then, you know, watching what they're doing with with the tax plan. And, you know, we have more than half of our representatives are millionaires and they do not represent middle-class American families. And I want to see working Americans in Congress who are making decisions who actually understand how the policies that they're enacting in DC are affecting our lives. And then this incredible group called Square One Politics actually reached out to me. They were started by some some people who work in media and some former Obama staff. And they founded this incredible group and they looked at districts across the country that had gone to Obama, that then went to Donald Trump, that had long-term Republican incumbents, that hadn't had a really strong fight. And then they started to call people in the district to see who could who people thought could take that incumbent on. And apparently everybody they spoke with told me that I could do that. And then uh, Senator Gillibrand's Long Island representative actually introduced us. And I started talking to them and they were very helpful in terms of 
kind of explaining what really goes into a congressional run and they kept asking me and really it was about it was about making sure that that we changed what was happening with our administration and how they were harming Long Islanders and harming people across the district and I have I have two babies and I I didn't want them I wanted them to grow up in a much more tolerant and just and prosperous world I decided to step up and run because of them really they were the, the reasons that I was hesitating to run and ultimately the reasons that I that I felt I really needed to run so as you mentioned your district went from Obama to Trump. Donald Trump in 2016 defeated Hillary Clinton by nine points. Also in your district, incumbent Republican Peter King defeated his Democratic opponent by 24 points. What do you think makes you a particularly formidable challenger to Peter King. So Peter King has been in Congress for 25 years. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the last time they targeted our district was back in 2006. And the district has changed. In 2013, the district was redrawn and he got a larger portion of Suffolk County into the district. And he doesn't really pay much attention to Suffolk County. He stays kind of in Seaford and Massapequa and he doesn't he doesn't speak to his constituents. He, in fact, refuses to hold a town hall meeting. So I I actually got a meeting with him, but because I, I organized a protest, a number of groups got together and we put together a protest with 400 people in front of his office. And I had called his office that day and I said, you know, we're, we're having a rally and I would like to come in and speak with you about your support for the Muslim ban. And his office told me to come in at 3.30 that afternoon. And by the time I got there, they had locked the office doors and sent the staff home. On Monday morning, I called and he agreed to meet with me. And he told the news, you know, when somebody hits 400 people to march in front of your office, you have to agree to meet with them. I sat down with him and I asked if he would hold a town hall because I said that you have you know, hundreds of thousands of constituents who'd like to speak with you. And he told me that it would turn into a screaming session that would diminish democracy. And I um, was disgusted by that because I, I know he told me that he doesn't need to hold a town hall because he's on the news all the time talking about his stance on the issues. And I said, well, with all due respect, that's that's not the point of a town hall. The point of a town hall is for you to listen to your constituents' perspective on the issues. You know, since then, I've been holding him accountable and working with our group when we have 3,000 members. And this is the first time that there's ever been this sort of grassroots energy to take on Peter King. He's gotten away with it for too long. He likes to say that he's, you know, the most bipartisan member of Congress, but really he's an extremist. He's against a woman's right to choose even in the cases of rape or incest. He supported the Muslim ban. He told dreamers that went down to his uh, went down to speak with him in D.C. that he doesn't consider them legitimate. This is a man who's voted to you know let coal companies dump waste into our waters. He's he's an extremist. He's not a moderate. He's not bipartisan. And for the first time in probably 25 years, people are finally paying attention. And it's really because of the grassroots momentum that we've built out here. And it's. It's been incredible to see how it's grown organically. We've done incredibly well in just the first two months of fundraising. We have more than 1,700 individual contributions. And that's incredible. I mean, people are people are excited. People are ready to go. And it's a little bit different this year. It's not politics as usual. So I, I think we have an incredibly strong chance of taking on Peter King. You're the granddaughter of refugees. How does that impact your perspective on things like immigration and the Muslim ban? So my grandparents were Russian immigrants. They left Russia during the revolution. My grandmother was five years old when she left. My grandfather was 17, and he left with 17 cents in his pocket. 
by himself. He left his family and he was on a ship for weeks. And the only thing he had to eat was oranges because the that was all that they, they were giving them on, on the ship. They were, they were refugees. They had a very difficult life and they came here and they worked really hard. And my grandfather became an engineer and he ended up working on the first lunar module to land on the moon. And my grandmother raised three children and she started her own business. She moved out to Long Island and started her own business selling wool and yarn right here in Amityville. It's very upsetting to see Donald Trump and the administration and Peter King talk about immigrants the way that they do. Immigrants are the backbone of our, I mean, they they strengthen our economy. Dreamers pay $2 billion a year in taxes. They're paying into social security. They're paying for the retirements of many Americans, yet they don't take any benefits from that. And Peter King has, is, he uses fear-mongering tactics and he, you know, he criminalizes immigrants who are hardworking Americans. We have uh, TPSs, temporary protected status. We have 7,100 people in our district on TPS and, you know, Congress just let it lapse for Haiti. But these are people who are in our district. They're our neighbors. They own businesses that employ native-born Long Islanders. They're homeowners. And these are people who contribute to our economy. They strengthen our economy. They strengthen, you know, the fabric of our society. And I'm the child of an immigrant, I'm the grandchild of an immigrant, and I'm married to an immigrant. I find it very upsetting how our administration is criminalizing immigrants. So like most Democrats, you support the DREAM Act, and it makes sense why. It's a very common sense piece of legislation that's supported by the overwhelming majority of Americans, including a lot of Republicans, but that doesn't make it easy to pass. Last month, immigration activists worked to convince Democratic members of Congress to vote against any spending bill that didn't include a clean DREAM Act, but not enough Democrats stood with DREAMers to force a vote. There's another spending vote later this month, which will be the last chance Democrats get to pass the DREAM Act this legislative session, since they don't really have any leverage if the spending bill passed. If you were a sitting member of Congress right now, would you pledge to support DREAMers by refusing to vote for any spending bill that does not include permanent protection for undocumented youth? Definitely. We, we absolutely need to pass a clean DREAM Act. And, you know, Peter King doesn't support the DREAM Act. He supports something called the Rock Act, which doesn't cover any TPS recipients. And for Long Island, it's not only the right thing to do, but it's also an economic issue. When you all of a sudden take people who are here legally and you make them undocumented, what's going to happen? It's going to be a, a public safety crisis because we have we have the MS-13 gangs in our district. And if people are undocumented and they're worried about being deported, they're not going to go to the police anymore and tell them what's happening with the gangs in our district. And those people will be at risk of being you know, preyed on by the gangs because they know they're not going to go to the police. If those people are no longer able to work, they're going to foreclose on their mortgages. We already have a zombie home crisis out here on Long Island. It's going to get worse. If we have more zombie homes, property values are going to go down. And you know that becomes a safety crisis as well. It's definitely something we need our Congress to fight for. As you said, the rights of undocumented Americans is an economic issue, but it's often classified as identity politics, along with women's rights, LGBTQ rights, etc. And you've talked about your problems with this framing. Could you explain how these are issues of economic justice? Absolutely. I was raised by a single mother who's a public school teacher, and she also taught night school to make ends meet. And, you know, I worked my way through high school and through college, and I paid my tuition, and I helped my mom out with 
bills. And I know how important it is for women to, to have economic freedom. We really, we are the key engines of economic growth and studies continually show that women tend to invest larger portions of their income into the nutrition and the health and the education of their children. Women are critical to strengthening working families and helping women succeed in our economy pays huge dividends down the road. Iceland just became the first country to legalize equal pay for equal work for women and men. And that's incredible because in the States right now, you know, white women earn 77 cents for every dollar a man earns, black women earn 63 cents, and Latinas earn just 54 cents. And that actually leads to hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost lifetime earnings. And older women in America are at greater risk of living in poverty than men are. And that's that's unacceptable. And Peter King actually voted against the Lilly Better Fair Pay Act. He voted against equal pay for women for equal work. When you think of the policy holding the U.S. back from immense economic growth, we don't think identity politics. We think taxes and infrastructure and, and trade. And we, we do label birth control and health care and reproductive rights and maternity coverage and paid leave and affordable quality daycare and you know sexual harassment as women's issues. But you know, the reality is really different. If we advanced women's equal participation in our economy, we could add $28 trillion to global growth by 2025. To give you some perspective, that's the equivalent of the United States and the, the Chinese economies. I mean, that's that's a huge, huge number. And if we had similar labor force participation rates to Canada or to Germany, countries that have more equitable labor market policies, we'd actually have about five and a half million more women in the, in the workforce. And that would be an additional $500 billion in the US economy. That's not an identity issue. That is an absolute economic issue and we we need to work on on you know strengthening w- women's economic empowerment and that's something that I've worked on you know in my career I focused on women's economic empowerment and you know we have 19% of women in congress we we need more women seated at the table and it's not a women's issue and it's not a man's issue it's an american issue and it's something that we really all need to rally behind in order to jumpstart our economy so you mentioned that part of why you ran is seeing the man in the White House having bragged about sexual assault. And while that's kind of the most egregious example in politics, we've also seen recently that there is a crisis of sexual abuse in Congress. I'm wondering what you would do as a member of the House to confront that, knowing that a decent number of your colleagues might be a part of the problem. I think we need a zero tolerance policy. There's no place for sexual harassment in society and we need to call it out when we see it and we need to you know, stand up for women. And it's that Me Too movement was incredible to see. I, as a woman running for office, you get sexually harassed. Just the comments even that you say, you know, when we held our first protest in front of Peter King's office, I was there with my seven-month-old strapped to my chest, my mom and a nun, and we were marching. And some of the counter protesters told us that we should get raped by the Muslims we wanted to let in. And I can't tell you how many times I've been threatened online since I started to to run. And uh, it's it's really difficult. And it's something that we need to stand up for and we need to fight back against. Of course, another big mobilizing issue has been healthcare. It's perhaps the issue that's mobilized Democrats most under Donald Trump. What are your positions on healthcare, not just in terms of what we need to not do right now, but what we will hopefully do when Democrats have control of Congress? I support Medicare for all. And when I talk to my constituents, most of them talk about the fact that healthcare should be a right and not a privilege. And, you know, it won't happen overnight. And the Affordable Care Act is an absolutely critical part. It's a critical first step in, in fixing our broken healthcare system. We need to protect what's working in the Affordable Care Act. We need to change what isn't. But universal coverage 
It should be the North Star that we're pushing for. I mean, this is something by most objective standards in the long run would save us millions of dollars per year. The government can exercise buying power with private insurers that no private sector entity can match. And we spend more money per person on healthcare than the rest of the developed world, yet we have the worst maternal mortality and the lowest life expectancy rates of any other wealthy country. And that's, I mean, that's something we need to change. We're the only industrialized country without access to universal healthcare. And this is something that stymies innovation. One of the reasons that people are less likely to change their jobs or to start new ventures is how are they going to pay for healthcare? Because healthcare is tied to your job. So having universal healthcare will let new businesses grow and thrive. It's incredibly important to me because I, I have firsthand experience dealing with some of the downfalls of our current system. After after each of my children was born, I had thousands of dollars in medical bills, even though we pay hundreds of dollars in insurance premiums each month. I recently took both my children to the emergency room. They both ended up in the emergency room within two weeks of each other, and I had $2,400 in bills because of our high deductibles. And my mother has had six spine surgeries, and I, I know what it's like to spend hours on the phone arguing with doctors who won't take her health insurance. We don't get to choose when we get sick, and I I don't think that healthcare should just be for the wealthy or for those who are already healthy and you know can afford it. It, it. We need to fight for universal healthcare for for every American, and nobody should have to hope and pray that they don't get sick or have an unfortunate accident. Our representative Peter King actually voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which would have left seventy four thousand people in our district without health insurance, and it would have denied three hospitals in our district with millions of dollars in funding. So the ACA is, it's an important first step. It's enabled 20 million Americans to access health insurance. 60% of Americans want to expand Medicare to provide health insurance for every American. And I think it's time that Congress listen to what Americans actually want rather than the special interest groups that dominate the healthcare in our country. I definitely would be fighting for Medicare for all. Now, looking abroad, you have spent much of your career advocating for diplomacy and the UN. So I have a feeling you have some pretty strong feelings about what's going on in Washington and with the Trump administration right now. Yes. Um, he is bragging about and threatening with nuclear war via Twitter. And I cannot comprehend that the president of the United States is behaving that way. We need to focus more on diplomacy. I mean, we spend 20 times more on defense and intelligence than we do on diplomacy and development. And only 1%, 1.4% of our budget is actually spent on international affairs. And that's including foreign aid programs and diplomacy and security partnership. And I, you know, I spent my entire career working in international development and focusing on diplomacy. And that really stabilizes the world, not, you know, having a president who threatens war over over Twitter. We need a Congress who stands up. It's it's Congress's duty to approve war. Um, I think I think what happened in Niger really made it clear that we need a new authorization of, for the use of military force, you know, especially at a time when our president is, you know, regularly threatening nuclear war via Twitter. The American people need more transparency and Congress needs, you know, they need their constitutional oversight back. I think that Congress really needs to step up and 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 do that part of their job because I I don't trust Donald Trump and he makes me very nervous for my children's safety and what he'll do to the country. I mean, I'm I'm very concerned that he will start a war. I mean, 
we have a president who, who actually threatened nuclear war via Twitter. Yes, I'm, I'm very concerned with his lack of diplomacy and lack of knowledge of, of global affairs. Lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? Well, so our, our website is lubaforcongress.com. It's L-I-U-B-A for congress.com. And it would be great if people could go to our website and sign up to get updates on our campaign and also to volunteer. And right now, the biggest thing we need are grassroots donations. We already have more than 1,700 individual donations from our supporters. But um, if we're going to show Peter King that we're serious, we really we really need that early money. And as you know, it often turns into even more support down the road. So getting involved in making a contribution would be incredible. Any amount you can contribute now has outsized impact compared to money in a few months. Peter King has a $2.6 million war chest you know, I have I have all of you, I have these great grassroots supporters who are excited about passing progressive policies and, and fighting for the middle class. If you go to our website, we have our new campaign video up, sharing that campaign video with your friends. That would be incredible. And and just signing up to volunteer as well. We're going to have our first big volunteer kickoff event next month. And uh, I'm excited about that. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. It's really great to see activists running for Congress, especially in districts that are considered red. As you said, Peter King hasn't been really challenged seriously in a long time. And if we're going to flip the house, it's so necessary to challenge every single district. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's been great. It's been great speaking with you. And one of the things I realized when I first started this group was that our local party really got involved when it came to election time. They they got involved when it came to raising money, when it came to, you know, collecting signatures and helping to elect candidates. But the thing I felt was missing that was missing was engaging voters on issues that are important to them during the year when it's not election season. People care passionately about the issues and if you give them a way to get involved, it turns into this incredible movement. And that's that's what's really been the greatest thing to see is we've had different committees pop up and people focusing on the issues that are important to them. And when we had our town hall, 300 people showed up and they talked about how the policies that, that our Congress people were enacting in DC were affecting their lives. And it's really been an incredible, incredible thing to see this year. I'm thrilled to be able to run to represent this district. And it was great to talk to you today. Yeah. We wish you luck on your campaign. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast to hear more great candidates like this. Thanks for listening.